Hi, I'm Hillary. And I'm Emily. And, and we're, we're the, the Screen, Screen Sirens. Welcome to our podcast. This is going to be a new show where we discuss classic movies. It's just two dames talking about old movies they like. It's like FDR's fireside chats, except we're two ladies and there is no fire. So that intro music you heard was from Charade, which was a 1963 movie starring Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant. And Emily's going to tell you a little bit about the movie. Uh, so the synopsis is that Regina Lambert returns to Paris from a ski holiday in Switzerland to find that her husband, who she was planning to divorce, has been murdered. She's told by CIA agent Hamilton Bartholomew that Charles Lambert was one of five men who stole 250 grand in gold from the U.S. government during World War II, and the government wants it back. But the money was not found in his possessions, and she doesn't know where it is, and she starts to be pursued by a number of her husband's associates who think she has the money. And there's a Cary Grant character also. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, there's, and then there's Cary Grant. <laughs> so it's a good movie to watch the first time, and then it only gets better like, in subsequent times, but it's the kind of movie that uh, you wish you could go back and watch for the first time again. So I've seen it multiple times, and it was the second best way to watch this movie is to watch it with someone who has seen it for the first time, so. This was my first time watching it, and I, I've heard it described as a sexy thriller-slash-rom-com, <laughs> which right. is fairly accurate, but it's heavy on the thriller. Uh, but there's great flirty repartee between Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant that I think gets it the rom-com status, too. <laughs> Way to go, Cary Grant. Yes. So, Emily, can you tell us any trivia about this? I've been dying to hear all the trivia about this movie. Well, one piece that I read was that Cary Grant turned down the role because he was almost 30 years older than Audrey Hepburn when they were filming this movie, and he felt that he would be seen as a predator if he was pursuing her, either physically pursuing her or romantically pursuing her, both of which happened in the film. <laughs> um, but he had to be convinced, and then he had such a good time working with Audrey Hepburn that after that he said that was one of his great goals to work with her again, although I don't think they ever did. I think they... I don't know if they work together again. I was going to say funny face, but... <laughs> no, that was her with another extremely old, old man. actor who was inappropriate <laughs> for her to date. That's one of those trivia things about... I know, one of the trademarks for her on IMDb is that she always is like cast against an older man. Which... Well, I guess that's how you continue to play the ingenue like, right. into your 30s. Because <laughs> all the men are older than you. <laughs> Um, but the crux of the movie was really that she didn't know who she could trust throughout, and it's consistently the Cary Grant character, she doesn't know if she can trust him. Um, I heard that when Cary Grant was turning down the role, they thought about recasting it with Natalie Wood and Lauren Beatty, which would have been a totally different vibe. It's a totally different movie. <laughs> um. Well, as I was looking up stuff about this movie for this podcast, um, 
I didn't realize that the director of this movie was the same director as Singing in the Rain and um, um, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers and Funny Face and The Grass is Greener and Indiscreet, which is another Cary Grant movie that I really love and we can talk about on a different podcast. Um, the director was Stanley Doman. And I think you could kind of see it a little bit that he did musicals because of the way the chase scenes were choreographed. Oh, yeah. Uh, so should we talk a little bit about these actors and why we love them or don't yes. love them? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So Cary Grant was the male lead, and he plays Peter Joshua. He has four different names throughout the movie, but the initial name is Peter Joshua. Spoiler alert. That's not the end name. By the way, if you don't like spoilers, I just want to say that this is a podcast about movies that are, you know, almost 80 years old. So if you haven't seen them yet. Don't listen to the podcast. (laughs) But, so Cary Grant was known as a heartthrob throughout his career. I've loved him in a lot of movies. Um, Bringing Up Baby, Philadelphia Story... And he just sort of infuses every role with charm. And even when we were coming up with a list of movies we wanted to watch for the podcast, we had trouble coming up with non-Cary Grant movies. (laughs) (laughs) Why bother watching a non-Cary Grant movie? (laughs) He also did some Hitchcock, so he could do the, like, you know, romantic comedy vibe, but he could also do more serious dramas. Um, Also, what I know about him, British... And bisexual. <laughs> so there's something for the guys, too. If you like Carrie Grant. A little something for everyone. <laughs> um, so Audrey Hepburn is another one of those those uh, actors who seems to be in everything and in a lot of the movies that we talked about wanting to discuss. So these, these two quintessential actors, I guess. Um, she's Belgian, although she has sort of an, an interesting accent, I guess. Um... And her parents, she she's described all over the internet as having blue 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 blood and um, cosmopolitan roots. Um, so she lived um, she lived in Belgium Belgium for a while, and then during in the Netherlands she lived um, in one of the the Nazi occupied towns um, in the Netherlands, and talked a lot about like how that that experience affected her growing up. Um, and eventually she, um, you know, moved to London and went to a private school and, like, never really had any, like, confidence in herself, which is, I think, interesting to think about um, her as a, like, sort of the sort of fashion role model that she seemed to be. Um, but she always seemed to say that she was always, like, not well-equipped for whatever role um, she was going to be playing. I always thought it was interesting that she's such a heartthrob, but she's not overtly sexy. She's sort of demure, Mm -hmm. but somehow she works that. And people are still saying, I hear people say all the time that their fashion icon is Audrey Hepburn, with just very simple clothing styles. Yeah. Well, and she wasn't even sure that she was right for, for Breakfast at Tiffany's, and she retired... Not too long after, um, you know, she retired at the height of her her career because she, you know, wanted to finish 
on a high note and go raise her children and and so she you know she finished her acting career and then she went and worked for UNICEF at, you know towards the end of her life which I think is a neat sort of using her using her powers for good hmm. yeah and she, you hear about that with some other actors too that then they go into humanitarian causes I guess the travel and exposure to influence of influential people gives them that opportunity yeah um, there are a lot of other people in this movie that are interesting. James Coburn and Walter Matthau. Um, and then a lot of French. We were talking, when we were watching this, we talk, talked about how there were, um, a lot of, or no, I talked, I was noticing that there were a lot of French actors, um, which I guess is partly because it was filmed on location in Paris. Um, yeah, the setting was beautiful. And you felt like you were, it was like a Paris that doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you were tra traveling not only to another place, but to another time, which is beautiful. It was interesting seeing a young Walter Matthau, because I just think of him as grumpier old men so much <laughs> yeah. Well, what's interesting is that this was one of the first film comedies that he did. He hadn't done any of the, like, Jack Lemmon stuff yet. He'd been in a lot of, like, darker, like, dramas, and it was only, because this movie was made in 1963, it was... Um, it was before all of the, that, and so it was sort of a, like a beginning of a new part of his career. It's interesting. It's funny because even though, spoiler, he turns out to be the villain in this movie, <laughs> the way that he plays the role actually does show a comedic turn. There's sort of a subtle humor to how he plays yeah. it. Yeah. Which I enjoyed. Yeah. You can see why he did spend the rest of the time, or not the rest of, but a lot of the rest of his career doing comedy. Oh, another piece of trivia that I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> you can mention him. Uh, when they were trying to convince Cary Grant to take this role, the screenwriter stayed up all night rewriting it and trying to tone down anything that could be seen as predatory, and he sent it to Cary Grant the next day, and Cary Grant signed on, and then asked, like, what did you change about it? And the writer said he had just switched all of the sexual flirtation lines to Audrey Hepburn's character so that she was the pursuer, and he wouldn't seem like he was a creepy old man coming on to her. Yeah. And it is interesting in the movie that you see, for someone who's supposedly going through a hard time from the beginning of the movie, she's immediately very flirtatious. Yeah, Seems from the very beginning, with this guy that she <laughs> <laughs> randomly met at a chalet in, or at a ski resort in yes. Switzerland. And Hillary, did you think it was at all weird that she met him for about five minutes at the ski resort and then he actually looks her up in Paris and stays with her as a way to, like, comfort her for her husband dying. <laughs> yeah, right. It, it is a little bit weird. And it is, it's weird that she doesn't have, like, she doesn't lean on any other people. It's like she doesn't, not only is she um, an American expat, but she doesn't have anybody else to like, lean on except for this one friend. Yes. I mean, I guess if Cary Grant showed up at my door in my time of need, I'd be like, sure. <laughs> yes, I accept. <laughs> but she does have that friend, Sylvie, who's in the movie, and I, I just assumed that 
if it's a time when you don't know who you can trust, wouldn't you go to your existing friendship? Right, right, right. You wouldn't, you wouldn't start a new friendship. Well, and she does, I guess Sylvie and Sylvie's son do end up being pretty, like, important to the plot. Yes. They're sort of these side characters, but um, the son actually is pretty important to the way that the, the, the chase resolves itself, I guess. Yeah. The son, is it his name Jean, Jean Louis? Jean Louis. Yeah. Jean Louis, who squirts people in the face with water guns and has no repercussions whatsoever. <laughs> it's it, fine. Outside <laughs> in the, the Swiss Alps, where it would freeze on your face. <laughs> no. It's, it's the sixties. It's D- different parenting style. Yeah. <laughs> It was an interesting camera angle that they opened the movie with because they're showing this little boy, well, you don't know this little boy, pointing a gun, and it looks like someone's immediately trying to assassinate Reggie, Audrey Hepburn's character. Um, But you do see guns a lot throughout the movie, and they also depict violent deaths somewhat graphically, I think, for the time. The one that really stuck out to me was... Tex being killed by being suffocated yeah. and like wrapped in, in cellophane, some sort of cellophane, it looked like. Yeah. Yeah, there are a lot of different kinds of violent deaths in this, this movie, beginning the, with the very beginning when Charles Lambert is, is you know, murdered and thrown off a train and, and a lot of violent like fighting. Even yeah. if nobody dies, there's a, you know, you know, that whole scene where um, Cary Grant gets slashed in the back. With um, the hook. With the hook, yeah. And comes back with this bloody shirt. And yeah, that was a little... Some of it... I actually did have disturbed dreams after watching this movie, even though I enjoyed the movie a lot. <laughs> Some of the violence, I was like, oh. Wow. Yeah. But I guess we were sort of moving into the 60s at this point, and... Um, how did you like Paris? Because I know you spent time in France. How did it compare to your experience? Well, I think, I mean, I think you, you said it right when you said it's like the, the totally different time that um, doesn't exist. I and mean, it was interesting to see the way that the, like, the metro was in the early 60s. I mean, even, like, even in the United States, it's nothing, I mean, it's just nothing like that now. This sort of, like, almost hand-powered... Um, you know, rickety-looking metro. Um, that's sort of this iconic part of Paris today, and, um, and those gorgeous, you know, the gorgeous apartment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that apartment, I would have taken it an instant. <laughs> like, yes, I would like to buy this at auction. <laughs> <laughs> it seemed very glamorous. The the whole, even with the dark mood of the plot. The, it made Paris seem very appealing. Yeah, and it it made it seem like a very cosmopolitan place, where there were like when they go to the dinner club and the um, you know the host or whoever is leading the like the party games, you know, is like simultaneously translating um, from English to French to Italian, I think, um, you know, just sort of on the fly, and it it sort of set the set the mood of this very, like, cosmopolitan setting and sort of went along with this sort of cosmopolitan um, plot where that sort of 
like implicates the U.S. and France and the French Resistance and World War II and um, the sort of even though it was taking place in just you know in one city, there were these references to like bigger, bigger things. I think this was also a time when Americans were getting very interested in French culture too, yeah. right? With like the new wave. French movies and stuff. So, yeah. certainly made me want to go. We <laughs> <laughs> should do a series of on French movies and yes, then <laughs> and we'll, go there. We'll record on site, right. <laughs> <laughs> on location podcast. <laughs> you can't yeah. see this, but we're in a French cafe right now. <laughs> I know all the like the French onion soup and the like the coffees and the. Um, what did you think of the comedy of that party game with the voluptuous woman that Cary Grant was trying to get the orange from? Yeah, that was a racy game. I can't it imagine was. like playing that with strangers even now. I honestly have played that as an icebreaker before, but I was mortified. By it. I mean, we did not <laughs> let the oranges go to places the oranges should not have gone. <laughs> we kept the oranges safely in our necks. It's not that hard. <laughs> Just keep it up there. That's a plot point. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I know you want to sit and talk about the costumes a little bit because there were some there was pretty amazing costumes. You never guess what loud applause this cunning hat receives. And you'd never dream the things that you could hide within these sleeves. Um, I loved the red coat with the leopard print hat. Mm -hmm. I loved the 60s ski ensemble. Uh -huh. Yeah. And my favorite was the mustard yellow coat and hat that she wore when she was being chased uh -huh. by Cary Grant through the metro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some perfect, uh, some perfect chase clothing. Mm -hmm. And um, I also enjoyed the trench coat she wore and the scarf tied around her hair when she was trying to follow Cary Grant's character and figure right. out if he was bad or not. <laughs> her undercover outfit. Yes. <laughs> the, the whole movie made me want to get a trench coat and wear it. Just like a normal, you know, like beige pet trench coat. Even. Well, they never go out of stock. <laughs> Uh, I also loved the scene where she was wearing the trench coat and following Cary Grant, and she kept sitting down with that German tourist, <laughs> yeah. and then he would chase her, and she would say, like, leave me alone, or I'm going to call the police. And then if Cary Grant turned around, she'd go back to him and be like, wait, how are you? What are you doing? <laughs> and he's like, Fraulein, Fraulein. Yeah. It was very funny. Yeah. I mean, that does sort of raise the, the issue of, like, some of these issues of, um, like, the, the, like, representation of women in movies in that time, but, like, particularly in this movie where, like, as you were saying earlier, that she, you know, she ends up being the one coming on to Cary Grant, um, but she's also, you know, it's all about getting married, to him and um. I, I did think it was interesting that it, it was clear she had an unhappy marriage I wish we had learned more about their relationship at some point in the movie because 
all we know is that she thought he was lying and she wanted a divorce. But, like, how did they meet? Like, why was she attracted to him? Right. Why did they get married in the first place? And, yeah, how long were they married? All of that. Um, yeah. But she doesn't seem too torn up about his death. Yeah. Well, and it was funny because she says that she was working beforehand at Uresco and then as a simultaneous translator and then she married him and she stopped working but then as soon as she died she got her old job back and she's only friends with Sylvie this you know her French friend from working and so it is like the timeline is and the motivation is a little bit unclear yeah like I wonder if maybe she wasn't living in France for that long like maybe she came for that job that Charles Lambert got married. But it's, that's all just conjecture. <laughs> we need the screenwriter here. What did you think of the gender politics of Reggie's relationship with Peter slash all the other names? <laughs> Crookshank. Adam. <laughs> um, I mean, it was, the, the, I mean, it is sort of that, like, like you have to, like, weigh the balance of like you know she's she's pursuing him but is that like does that make her more powerful or less powerful that like she's the one who's pursuing him um and yet all she wants to do is like climb into his lap and kiss him and like like in the midst of this like life-threatening situation she's like trying to like manipulate him to come over to her room and like you know, she screams so that he is worried about her and runs over frantically, and all he, all she wants to do is then, like, capture him in her room so that she can kiss him. It is interesting. I mean, I feel like if she was just pursuing him, you know, to no particular end, that that would be empowering, but the fact that she really wants to marry him feels yeah. less empowering somehow. Yeah. Well, and overall, her character seems a little bit like, like, yes, she must be very smart because she's, like, a simultaneous translator, but she, you know, there are a few scenes where they're, like, walking along the Seine and eating ice cream where she's just sort of, like, carrying the conversation in, like, random places that he can't necessarily follow, and it, it, I mean, it clearly makes her seem hair-brained and a little bit scattered, which, I mean, I guess you would be if somebody is pursuing you for $250,000, but, like, it's almost, you know, like, as if to say that she's just a, you know, a scattered young woman who can't be trusted, you know, to keep the thread of a conversation going. Oh, yeah. I wonder if, I mean, another way you could look at it is she's basically going through trauma. And there is that whole phenomenon people talk about where people are more likely to hook up after funerals. Have you heard about this? No. What? Because, <laughs> about this. because they want to feel alive. Like, basically, they're kind of exposed to death. Oh, so they're so, like, instead of being morbid, they're being... Yeah, and I don't think it's conscious. Yeah. You know, I think it's... People do it without realizing it. But I, there could be some of that happening. Like, oh, my husband was killed and all these people are trying to kill me and or extort me. <laughs> <laughs> so I need to go have some sex. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that could be the case. I thought that the chemistry was kind of interesting. And usually Cary Grant is, like, super sexy. And, like, not that he wasn't in this movie, 
but you could tell that like his sexuality is like way downplayed and she, her like all the like crackle I felt like was coming kind from her. her. Well, and I think we talked at some point about how um, Cary Grant refused to take his shirt off in this movie. Oh yeah, he well he I think he was in his he might have been sixty three he was in his sixties and he wrote it into the contract that he would not remove his shirt because he was starting to get a little thicker around the middle I guess although he looked fine I was gonna say I you know we can be the judge of that <laughs> <laughs> but that's what resulted in that shower scene where he was in his full suit which I actually thought was very cute yeah the drip dry. <laughs> Care instructions. <laughs> Where and it won't get um, wrinkled. Um, let's talk a little bit more about the social justice angle of things. Soldiers, in the name of democracy, let us all unite! Sylvie and Gina Lampert both work at this, at Uresco, which is clearly some kind of, like, European version of UNESCO or some, you know, an early, an early version of um, the EU, some fictionalized, um, like, multi-state union. A simpler time when people cared about peace and unity in Europe. Because <laughs> we're, we're taping this just after the Brexit, so. <laughs> um, I thought it seemed like a really cool job mm-hmm. that she had, and I would have wanted to stay there if yeah. not were her. She obviously was smart and caring to be in work like that. Yeah. Yeah. And there was also the war element. Um, basically stealing money from the French resistance, right. <laughs> which was the, the the central plot point of the show, is really that Charles Lambert and you know these other pursuers stole money that the U.S. government gave them to funnel to the French resistance. Right, they were part of the OSS, which was the precursor to the CIA during the war, and and instead of delivering it to these like. Well, and in the 1960s, they, you know, the French resistance was understood to be, like, French peasants who, you know, were pulling against the Nazi government and, you know, the Nazi um, occupiers and, um, you know, so these, like, ragtag people, which, like, like historians now know is, like, not really what was happening. But, um, yeah, so they basically, like, stole the half, a quarter of a million dollars from French peasants and... Which is kind of a big ending, too. Yeah, I, I don't know how they could live with themselves, and they clearly didn't get to be better people. <laughs> it just got worse. <laughs> every single one of them was willing to kill someone for that money, when if they hadn't brought it up, they could have just sort of like eventually faded. They could have just faded into the back. They committed a horrible crime against two governments, <laughs> and then instead of fading away, they're drawing attention to themselves by trying to get the money. Right. So. That's not a very community-focused <laughs> effort on the part of this. Very selfish. <laughs> Capitalistic. <laughs> yes. Like a child again. I don't think I'll do anything of importance that will displease you. But, Mother, from now on, you must give me complete freedom. 
including deciding what I wear, where I sleep, what I read. Do you think this movie passes the Bechdel test? Do you want to tell a little bit about what the Bechdel test is? Right. So it was a, so the Bechdel test is is named for Alison Bechdel, who is um, like a feminist, cultural critic, and writer, and cartoonist. She didn't develop it. I, my understanding is that she didn't develop it, but it's just named for her because she's such a... Like she has raised some of these questions. So that, like, in order to pass the Bechdel test, two women have to be speaking to each other about something other than, um, like, a male love interest. Um, and so, <laughs> in this movie, really, the only opportunity to, for that to, like, occur is between Sylvie and um, Audrey Hepburn's character. Um, and for the most part, they do sometimes talk about Reggie's husband, you know, but if you, like, depending on, like, what the relationship with Reggie's husband was, like, I don't know, does that pass the Bechdel test? And then, of course, they're also talking about Jean-Louis, Sylvie's son, which yeah. I guess a lot makes it pass the Bechdel test. I think, I mean, technically it, it passes, but it, it scrapes by. <laughs> it scrapes by. I mean, there's really, I mean, Sylvie's not even She's a super prominent character, so, but, and that's your only opportunity because there's no other female character that, I don't even think on the phone she interacts with any other women. No. So. Yeah, there's like six men and six white guys, six old white guys, and then and then Sylvie. Yes. And then various other like male characters. Like the nightclub guy and the police agent and the police inspector. Yeah. Hiram Hamilton, um, Bartholomew. Bartholomew. Which is a fabulous name. Yes. I would take that name any day. <laughs> that sounds like the name of a like a US ambassador. Yes. <laughs> it does. So just barely charade you pass. <laughs> but take it up a notch for the sequel, is what I would say. <laughs> we're, we're waiting for it. Uh, so overall, what would you rate this movie uh, out of five stars? Um I even though it doesn't really pass the Bechdel test, probably, or it just keeps, scrapes by, as you were saying, I think I would still give it a 5 out of 5. I don't, uh, that is high. Now everything's going to be compared to this movie. This <laughs> no. is the standard. This is the standard of this podcast. <laughs> I, don't know. I would give it 4 out of 5. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, and there were just lots of interesting film techniques, like great film angles, like uh, when she's identifying the body and oh, yeah. the camera is in like the mortuary drawer. Yeah, I liked that. Um, I liked the tone of it that even though it was a little bit dark, there was a lot of fun repartee. Mm -hmm. and, and the music is really fun too. The so music it is that tone. But you would still give it a 4 out of 5. 4 out of 5. Um, I'll probably get into my fives when we start doing musicals. <laughs> <laughs> Showing your true colors. Here's another day.